0: Get out your Bibles or your devices and turn to the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 1. Rachel's going to read the first few verses for us today. Thank you.
1: All right. I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And I'm reading from the NRSV this morning. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look! The Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and, in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pothom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites." The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them.
0: Thank you. Well, beginning the journey, a a new journey, a new year, a new message series, walking with God, with Exodus as our guide. But in a few ways, it's not new at all. Following the ancient story, this, this story written nearly 3,000 years ago, what could it possibly mean for us today? Aren't Twitter and TikTok far more relevant, but are they enriching? Is it possible that an ancient story like this could actually form us in a better way and lead us to better places maybe it is more relevant than we would imagine. If we would dare to go on the journey, walking with God is not a new phrase or metaphor. Uh, Probably if you grew up within a Christian church context, it's a pretty familiar, maybe even cliche phrase. It goes way back though. Even the Apostle Paul used the metaphor famously, Galatians chapter 5 verse 25, following his His list of the fruit of the Spirit of God, he says this since we live by this Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Some translations of the English, English translations of the Greek, let us walk with the Spirit. The disciples of Jesus actually walked with him, followed him on the road. We saw as we journeyed through the gospel, according to Mark, that much of the discipleship was kind of in between the stories. When it simply would say, Jesus and His disciples moved from this city to this city, and in our minds, we may not connect that that could have been 20 to 30 or 40 miles that they would have walked on the road together, and we imagined some of those journeys of what that would have looked like, The spiritual formation can happen along the road. Jesus Himself showed up after His resurrection to two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and their first revealed Himself to them and taught them. This walking with God theme and story continues. It is not new. But long before Jesus and the disciples walked, even to some of the earliest Jewish patriarchs in the very beginning of the whole story in Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6, a man named Enoch and a man named Noah are both said to have walked with God. So that metaphor, that phraseology goes back thousands of years into our collective history. The idea of walking or pilgrimage or journeying is both actual, is reality for many God followers throughout history, as well as it is metaphorical, is spiritual for us. But we can think of some of the the famous patriarchs and leaders Uh, Throughout the story of God in the scriptures, Abraham and Jacob and David and Paul, and maybe most famously the story we're beginning to look at, Moses and all of Israel becoming a walking people, a journeying people. Not a new concept, rooted in history. And for those of us that have been striving to follow Jesus for any length of time, we could probably uh, easily describe this as a faith journey. (laughs) sometimes an unexpected one, often with hardship or turns we didn't expect or getting lost along the way, uh, turning away from the road or the path that we were meant to walk in. Jesus uses an analogy about walking in the kingdom on the narrow road. And often we might follow, and other times we might drift. Perhaps we would all collectively say these past few years from March 2020 until now have been an unexpected journey. We are trying to cling to the hope that the destination will be worth it. Many of us along the way have said or longed for simply to go back. I wish we could go back to how things were, recognizing that there really is no going back. The world has changed. The world does advance. Recognizing if we truly do pause that the back there wasn't all that great, but it was familiar. And for many of us, The fatigue of change and uncertainty and adapting is real. So I'm inviting us to be and to continue to be a walking people, journeying with God, walking forward in the coming days and perhaps the year ahead as we reflect on it near here, the beginning of a new one, but that we would resonate with the people of God throughout history, over the millennia who have been journeying people connecting literally, actually, with that metaphor, and, and in reality, in some ways, moving with God. And so, as one of the practical applications, I began to invite us to walk every day, actually to walk. And for some of us, that's easy. We already do it. It's a daily rhythm for us. For others of us, it's, it's an easy concept to grasp, and we agree, yeah, we sh- I should do that. I should be a walking... I should get around the block once a day, or maybe a mile, a mile here or there, or find some trails to walk. For others of us, it's a daunting thought. For others of us, we live with pain. We walk with a limp. We've been through a recent surgery, and the thought of walking isn't what it used to be. And faithfulness for you might simply be around the house, down the street and back slowly. It may look different for any number of us. What does it mean for you? I invite you to it. And and if you are a walker already and you do it for exercise and you have a brisk pace, I'm inviting us to walk slowly, at least for a part. I, I, I believe in walking for exercise, but to slow down, to listen, and to be present to the world, maybe to take earbuds out if that's a rhythm for you. And just listen and observe. If it leads to prayer or to thankfulness, good, but that's not the intent for the walk. It's simply to be present, to listen. I believe that can be a spiritual formation. It is for me. I also invited us to two other practices, to wake, to walk, wake, and thank. Simply wake. Some of us, we need to wake up earlier. We need to win that battle of the blankets in the morning. Others of us just need to simply wake up early enough that we don't have to be rushed in the morning. For some of you, there's no rush, you're retired, you're in a different season of life. For others of us with young kids or with busy jobs, every morning feels like a rush. What would it look like to wake up early enough to have no rush, for those that already don't, early enough to pause and to give our day unto the Lord, to give our spirit unto the Lord? We may do that in any number of ways, but I'm inviting us practically, before we allow any other voice into our life especially through those devices that most of us immediately turn to to see what we've missed or what we need from today or simply to allow to speak into our lives, that we would pause and invite God to speak into our lives. Get your coffee or find your place, sit, present yourself to God, ask Him to speak this day. Maybe read a scripture, maybe not. Maybe say a short prayer, maybe not, but simply to be present and to win the day. God, your voice first today I want to hear you and walk with you throughout the day. Deep breath, amen, and on you go. That may be all. That may be simply the spiritual formation of a daily rhythm that you need. And then thank, to be thankful. Many of us do this. Sometimes it's rote even before before our meal. But would you make it more real before you sit down to eat or first thing in the morning, before you lie down at night, be thankful, people as a first response unto God. And especially, this story will remind us to be thankful of God's provision, even the food that's before us, for most of us in this time and place in life, it's taken for granted that we have a full meal, that we have plenty, that we may even have leftovers. Let's truly be thankful and reflective, and thankful for our freedom, our spiritual freedom and our political freedom that we enjoy. This story will remind us of many other things to be thankful for, but these are simple practices. Maybe not easy because they require some discipline, some dedication, and a daily rhythm, but these kinds of things form us as much as any other things. We may add to them and expand them, but these are spiritual rhythms. These are expressions of walking with God, being present with Him. We don't need to go from zero to 60. We don't need to go from no spiritual practices to an hour of prayer every day on our knees to fasting three days every month to a spiritual discipline of reading through the Bible, this entire, you know, the entire Bible in this coming year. These all may be good goals, but simple practices do form us. And I'm inviting us to some simple, but maybe not easy practices. Are you ready for this kind of a journey? As we engage with maybe the simple practices, we might engage with this ancient story in a more tangible way. That would be my hope, at least. Some of you noticed I didn't invite us to read the story of Exodus. Anyone want to admit that you're an overachiever and you started reading Exodus because you knew I was going into it? Okay. Of course, one of our elders in the back. Everyone look at him. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Rory. I hope you begin... This was intentional if you do read great. I, I, I truly, of course, believe in the reading of Scripture and the reading of the story of God. If you are going to begin to read, begin in Genesis. And maybe some of you do have a regular rhythm of trying to read through the Bible every year or a couple years, and Genesis may have already come up for you. That is where the story begins. Uh, if you don't have a great familiarity of Genesis, you need one before you jump right into the second book, because it is a continuation of the full story. So, before just last week simply saying, you know, start reading this story, I wanted to pause and say, are you first preparing your heart to go on a journey? Because far more important for us than knowing and understanding the story of this ancient book is becoming a walking people, a people who walk with God. And really, that central word is highlighted for a reason, because with God with us and us with him is the entire story of his scriptures. And we need to understand that and hold that as we enter in to this journey together. Let me take a few minutes to put this into context. Try to bear with me and then I have a little short video from the Bible Project. Who's familiar with the Bible Project? Okay, a few. If not, I want to introduce you to a fantastic artistic expression of teaching the Bible. Tim Mackey and others out of Portland have been doing this for years, and I want to give you a snapshot of it. They give a little overview of the book of Exodus. So uh, hang in there. Some of you are already smiling because you enjoy it. Others of you have something to look forward to as you bear with me as I put this in context. Interestingly, the first word of Exodus, uh, Rachel didn't read because it was not in the NRSV. It's not in most of our English translations. It's simply omitted. You'd have to look to the Hebrew. For some of us, that's news. This was written in Hebrew originally in Exodus. The first word of Exodus is a conjunction. It's the word we would probably say and. It has been translated as now in some translations, perhaps the King James, but more accurately, it would be and. And these are the names. Beginning of a new book, starting with and, that should immediately clue us in that this is a continuation of something that was before. Part two, perhaps, of an epic novel. If Exodus is a chapter in a book, that's a long chapter. But some of you read novels, and they have parts breaking up, right? And you get to the part two. This would be like part two of this epic novel, probably known as the Pentateuch. Now, we could even broaden it to the entire canon of Scriptures, all 66 Plus or minus books, depending on how you land on your canonical Bibles, we can say that's one massive story of God, and it is. For the Hebrew people, the Pentateuch, Pent being five, five books, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, was one big story from creation to deliverance into the promised land, the land of Judea, the land flowing with milk and honey. That's one epic story. This is part two of a five parter, at least from a Hebrew perspective. And these are the names. There's a continuation of the story. So you need to know what happened in Genesis and especially how Genesis ended to really grasp the context. But it's about three to four hundred years in the future from the end of Genesis. So there is a significant gap in time that happened there. Furthermore, the language in the beginning of Exodus reminds us of the beginning of Genesis. There's a clear continuation. The language of multiplication of God's people, of fruitfulness specifically. If you remember the story of Genesis, or if you know the story, it began at God's creation. God creates all things, and He says to His people, Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. For some, that's new. For some, that sounds familiar. It's a reminder. Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly, so the land was filled with them. See the parallel? This is likely the same author or group of authors and editors. We'll get there, put a pin in it, writing this whole story. They want us to notice that this is a continuation. It's obvious if we understand the history. God was always with his people. Now, for these three or four hundred years where things became harsh for the Israelite people, eventually becoming oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, it may have felt to them like, God, where are you? Can we still believe that you are with us? Are your promises still good for us? They may have wondered. As many throughout history have felt those same longings and prayers. God, where is your presence with us? This doesn't feel good. Can we trust you? Can we believe in you? But the fact that they were being fruitful and multiplying should have been a sign that God was with them all along. Now, he's about to show up in some explicit, miraculous, obvious ways, as we see in the rest of the story recorded in Exodus. So hang in there, as God's people needed to hang in there. He was always with them. But it may not have felt like it at that time. At this moment in Israel's history, it's hundreds of years after the death of their patriarch Joseph, who was the son of Jacob, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, where we get the 12 tribes and really the full expression of the nation of Israel. Jacob, aka Israel, son of Isaac the patriarch, son of Abraham, the patriarch, and much of the story of Genesis follows that family, from Abraham through his son Isaac, Jacob Israel, and the twelve sons, and the story of Joseph in Egypt. Really, from Genesis chapter 12 on, it's that family, it's that story that is central as God is building His people. But before that, Genesis begins in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, telling of a perfect garden that God would dwell with His people forever. And that picture of a perfect dwelling, of God's presence with His people, is a picture we must hold throughout the entire story. It is from beginning To end, You could say the whole story is from garden to garden. In the book of Revelation, there's a renewed garden and the presence of God and the river flowing and the trees of life. This picture is restored. And all along the way, God is at work restoring the garden. Because in that garden, there was a break of covenant. God's people, Adam and Eve, rebelled against Him, turned away. We could ultimately say believed a lie... That God was not good and they must live in their own way. And that sent things on a spiral downward. It's been called various things over the years. I'll try to withhold those terminologies and simply say the rest of the story is about God's restoration of a perfect dwelling place with his people. When we come into this story of Exodus, in the center of the story, in fact, the first half is about a narrative story, and the second half is primarily about the building of the tabernacle, which would later become the temple. And in that tabernacle, and it will be very boring to go through every single detail, and we probably won't, we won't press it, but to understand the importance for God's people because what that meant was a picture of the garden, the way that they were to, to decorate it and use colors and beauty and signs of fruit and fruitfulness. This was God's dwelling with His people. He's restoring His presence with them. Ultimately, the entire story points forward to Jesus, who becomes the new tabernacle, like the new temple, God's dwelling place again with His people. At the time of Jesus' death, the curtain in that temple was torn in two from top to bottom, indicating that God's presence is now released fully into his world, not constrained to one place, but throughout all. At the time of Pentecost, the Spirit of God descends upon his faithful people, his voice filling their mouths. God is with them, and the, the gospel writers and, and Paul reflect on us, the church being the new temple of God, God in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. This becomes the whole storyline. God intended always to dwell with His people in perfect harmony, in fellowship, in oneness, for their life and abundance. That was broken. And we still live in the state of a broken, not complete, perfect communion with God. Although Christ has reminded us that it is possible And our hope holds on to that coming kingdom one day when all will be right and all will be renewed. Back to the beginning. That's a little forward thinking. Back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 6, things had gone downhill pretty quickly. Pretty bleak story from this perfect garden dwelling with God to the brokenness of that fellowship and to the distrust so that the firstborn son of Adam and Eve kills the younger son. That's a pretty fast downward spiral. We get to Genesis chapter 6, and here's what it says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that He had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor, grace in the sight of the Lord. Pretty bleak picture, but a glimmer of hope. And that really describes the rest of the story. Pretty bleak at times, but a glimmer of hope. Why? Because of God, because of His love, because of His grace, and because of His purposes. Now, you may know some of the story of Noah. What happens next? He builds an ark. Why am I bringing this up? This is maybe painstaking detail for some of us. Because if you know any part of the story of Exodus, any snapshots of the story, although it's being pieced together, you might know that baby Moses was saved by his mother who weaved together a basket out of papyrus and placed him in it and put him in the reeds of the river because of the decree of evil Pharaoh at the time to kill the baby boys of Israel because he was fearful of the expansion of their nation, as we'll see as we move into the story. Do you know the Hebrew word for that basket that his mother weaved? Of course you do. Ark. Why is that not translated in our Scriptures as ark? It is in some, but most of our English translations hold some form of basket, because that is what it is. But we miss what the author was trying to show us, the continuation of the story, the only two places in all of Scripture where that Hebrew word is used, Noah's ark and Moses' ark, both saved through the waters while many perished under the orchestration and overseeing of God Himself. That's what the author at least wants us to see, the connection and the continuation of the story. I use that as an example. We'll see many of those as we journey through this ongoing story of God saving, delivering, rescuing, making a way for His people, even when it seems most dire and bleak. That is the story of our God. He is always about this work. This is... My purpose here, to point out these parallels, this clear continuation of the story and the consistency and faithfulness of God to rescue, to save, and to deliver. Now, as an aside, some of you astute Bible st- scholars and readers are going to say, wait a minute, what about the Ark of the Covenant that comes up in this very story? You said it was only, the only time that word was ever used was Noah's Ark and Moses' Ark. Well, that word is actually not rightly translated Ark. It should be translated as box or crate. And somehow we have come up with the Ark of the Covenant with, I think, the error of later translators trying to bridge the story that was not actually there. So, good intention, we believe, bad execution. The remainder of Genesis from the salvation of Noah and his family, and again, the fruitfulness and multiplication that came from, from that family centers in on the family of Abraham, as I mentioned, and following his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. But in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, a, a promise of God that we must hold on to as we journey together. God chooses Abraham and shows him favor, just as he showed favor and chose Noah. He chooses Abraham, not because of something Abraham did, but because of who God is in his faithfulness and his grace. And he says, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation, Remember, Abraham was older in life and had no children. That's a significant part of the story. God says, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. But all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This becomes kind of the key covenant promise of God. To one man would would ultimately become the nation of Israel, but always from the very beginning with the mind, if we will see it, to bless every people across the face of the earth and throughout history, that God's mind and vision was that big. He would choose this family as a representative, but His heart is to bless all peoples everywhere throughout time. Amen. Amen. So we follow the remainder of the story through this family, a harrowing and tragic story that I probably recommend for you to read, but be ready to be surprised if you're not all that familiar with it. God's presence and faithfulness is through it all in the midst of some stumbling and troubling times. Okay, you've been hanging on for the little video. Are we ready for a little 2 minute and 42 second snapshot? I hope you enjoy this, the Bible Project. They are fantastic Bible teachers and it gives a little break in this extended overview.
2: The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now Jacob's 11th son Joseph had been elevated to second in command over Egypt and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half where centuries have passed and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh.
0: You wanted more, didn't you? You wanted more of that, less of me, I get it. They are brilliant and awesome storytellers. You can go to BibleProject.com and see those videos for free, and many others that they do. And They do some really good stuff. Maybe we'll see some more as we journey through, but recognizing this history was long, I was looking for a way to break it up a little bit and see some pictures with it into our mind as I try to paint some pictures with these words. As we tiptoe into this story, because it will be to, to be continued as we journey together. What's the most important thing for us to grasp today? God has been writing a story from the beginning. He's an incredible God, incredible author, incredible storyteller. Why do our hearts and minds resonate with the greatest stories? Because God has instilled it within us as we are made in His image. There's no end to the depth that we can mine out of the story of God to our blessing and to our understanding. There's no end to a knowledge of who who God is as He is an infinite God. But we hold on to and grasp that He is good, that He is sovereign, that from the beginning His desired our blessing, our fruitfulness our joy, our life, and it's all to be found with Him, that that is broken. That the story of Exodus, or the story of Genesis and Exodus, but the story of Genesis when it was spiraling downhill so fast and we saw in in Genesis 6, this is what always happens when we choose to live apart from God in our own way and our own will. This is meant to be a reminder. When we see harsh, broken, hurting things, when we experience them ourselves, when death and murder and oppression reign, we're supposed to be reminded of this is what always happens when humanity chooses their own will and way, when humanity tries to have the power that only God is meant to have and to hold perfectly. And we are invited to come back into submission to Him, to trust Him, to walk with Him, to ask of His grace and mercy once again and to receive it. So the writers of Scripture always hold this big picture in mind and bring it back to center. So many of them go all the way back to this creation story of God's presence and His dwelling with His people and how things have been broken since then. The Apostle Paul promises in his letter to the Philippian church, that God will complete what he started. That's what we need to hold on to. Philippians 1, 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ. We receive that as a promise from God. Even in the times when it doesn't feel like it. The times that if we have walked a spiritual journey, at times it felt, it felt the road is flat and straight and we're on the way and we're good and we're making progress. We're not alone. God is with us. We're with others. And there's other times where we would describe it as a bitter wilderness where we are hungry and thirsty and wondering about God's presence and promise and goodness, where we are wandering at times aimlessly, where we would reflect with the Israelites in that desert that would say, at least, at least back in Egypt, we knew where our next meal was coming from. But now we are hungry and thirsty, and you've led us out here simply to die. We thought we knew the God that we were following, but now we don't know. We wonder, we doubt, is what they said in Exodus 16, verse 3. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, for there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Translation, Moses, I thought you said God was good and loved us, and this doesn't feel like it. We believed you. Now we're not sure what kind of God we're following. Have any of your prayers ever felt like that? Maybe you haven't even voiced them because to to doubt God or question God is not allowed. But have you felt that at times in your spiritual journey? I thought I knew the God that I was following. And now I'm not so sure. We need not suppress any prayers of anguish, or lamentation. because These are not faithless, they are actually faithful, crying out to a God that we do believe is there, but that we are not presently experiencing and bringing to Him our doubts, our uncertainty, and a recognition of our own limitations. But a heartfelt desire, God, oh God, be with us now. Where are you, God? Joins in with the story of God's people throughout the ages. This ancient story will remind us that we are not alone. Our God is with us. Many have journeyed ahead of us in these places, in these deserts. Many of us need to simply look around us and see that others are journeying with us and be reminded of who our God is and what He has done throughout the ages that gives us hope that we can walk in and through any Significant trials and hardships today. Above all, would we hold on to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law and prophets, as we sang, who is the answer to God's presence dwelling with us, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, In Christ, every one of God's promises is a yes. For this reason, it is through him that we say amen to the glory of God. Will we say yes and amen? Will we walk with God this year? Will we wake with God this year? Will we give thanks to God throughout our days this year? Even when that list of thanksgivings feels short or hard to come by. Will we remember And will we see our faith renewed? If so, I believe we will be formed into his image. We will grow by his grace. And we will be led to new spiritual places as we journey together. Maybe now your bags are beginning to be packed, probably not with everything you will need. But will you go? Will we go together?